Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I'm very excited, Aaron Smith-Levin, to have you. Uh, you interviewed me, and now I get to reciprocate and have you on my, my channel. Um, you're a very dynamic, interesting guy. We're going to get into that. You were raised in Scientology. Uh, you are a staff member, Sea Org member, which is a billion-year commitment. We'll have you talk more about that. Uh, you had held various positions in Philadelphia, Clearwater, Los Angeles, uh, and you left the Sea Org in 2006, officially left in 2014. But I've gotten to know you because you started the Growing Up in Scientology YouTube channel, which is very, very successful. Good for you. Uh, you're the vice president of the Aftermath Foundation, and that is connected with Leah Remini and Mike Rinder and the A&E Special and their iHeart Media radio show, etc. And you live in Clearwater, Florida, the belly of the beast, so to speak, with your wife and three daughters. And uh, I'm thrilled to have you, Aaron. So welcome to the Influence Continuum. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be, be here with you. Yeah, pleasure. So um, I'm going to start with the basics, which is assume my listeners don't really know anything about growing up in Scientology. Give us a, win, our listeners a window into that world, please. <laughs> well, okay. So I'll, I'll try to give that glimpse from the perspective of the child and not an adult just looking back Great. on it. But because I think there are some well, you could say uniquely damaging, but also uniquely empowering aspects of Scientology from the perspective of a child. Good. I want to hear. That has to do with Scientology's perspective that there really are no children. There are just billion-year-old spirits in new little bodies. Right. And that is how L. Ron Hubbard thought about children. Um, it's how Scientologists in general think about children. And as a child, I mean, if you were to look back on it and go, what's the worst thing about being a child? It's being treated like a child. No, no, no child loves being treated like a child. Um, constant, you know, condescended to no rights, no freedoms, no liberties, whatever. Mm -hmm. And Scientology, um, does my experience as a young person working for Scientology, it, it's almost, it's interesting how much I look back on it and only remember the positives because at that young age, being treated like an adult, given the freedoms of an adult, was quite empowering, especially contrasted to uh, the other experience that I had as a young person in, in, in public school. I was in public school up until the sixth grade, mm -hmm. never had a great time of it, always felt, um, I mean, I say always, you know, you look back on these things and you paint, you, you, you paint with broad brushes. Right. <laughs> um, I just remember feeling not listened to, not respected, um, not considered. And, you know, then then we join staff at a Scientology org and all of a sudden I'm actually getting pay. Uh, I'm, uh, you, you know, being treated like an adult means you're given the freedoms and liberties of an adult, but also the responsibilities and, and burdens of an adult. And, and I want to uh, just interrupt for one second and say, I think I, if I remember correctly, your mom joined when you were six. For, I was four when she joined. So, yeah. so really some of my earliest memories are being in the Scientology org. Okay. I just also want to comment, if you don't mind, as a mental health professional who does a lot of work with people growing up, 
um, there's a downside to being treated as an adult because you are feel a pressure. Uh, you can't have fool around frivolously. And the people that I work with who were born in Jehovah's Witnesses, they would be be beaten uh, with with a belt. You know, if they if they were making noise in the back during the services and such, like they they weren't allowed to have fun as kids, and they mm. had to dress. Now, up. is that because uh, they were being treated as adults, or is it just against the rules to have fun? They they take their their cult very seriously because Armageddon's going to happen any moment, and little kids are shown these horrific videos of people dying everywhere who aren't part of the God's chosen organization, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's, there's a downside to rushing people through childhood, normal childhood experimentation totally. and just fun and play and imagination. Anyway, back to your story. Well, I think Please. in some respects, uh, um, you know, the person going through it, um, and again, this is going to be different for everybody, but I think the effects, those negative effects may not necessarily rear their heads until later in life, depending. I mean, you're, you're, you're in the JW, you're, you're describing a very physically abusive situation. So that's its yeah. own thing for sure. But, you know, as far as the developmental um, issues with not uh, having the the experience of having just been a child with the... <laughs> just that child experience. It's something I struggle with now that I have teenagers of my own. You know, I have um, three girls, 16, year, 16 14, and, and 12. And in, in some respects, you know, I don't know what their normal experience is supposed to be. So I sort of defer to my wife on that. You know, like my oldest might ask to go do this or that. And I'm like, is that normal? Is that something a high schooler would do? Because I don't think so. I need to refer to my wife who did actually go to high school. <laughs> yes. So that's good for your kids that they have a mom that knows more what's <laughs> normal. Because honestly, when people come to me for help to recover, part of working with people born in cults is teaching them what's normal. Like what's normal developmentally is you're giving unconditional positive regard, you're sacrificing your work to take care of the child. The child always is getting a message that they're more important than other things, which in my experience with people in cults, that's the opposite. The org is always number one, and what you need to do to take care of your kid is way down the list. Sometimes they're dished off to other members to take care of, and my yeah. experience talking with some folks born in Scientology is they were labor trafficked. They were actually oh, put sure. to work in oh, a way sure. that children, it's illegal to put children to work in normal contexts in the U.S. For sure. And it's it's interesting, right? Because um, uh, I don't want to create the wrong impression that uh, when I say I'm describing it from the viewpoint of the child going through it, like realize there are things that I experienced that at that age I felt were fine and okay. And only in contrast now right. that I have children that same age myself, right. do I go, would I ever in a million years let my child go through the same thing? N not, in a, not in a million years. And yet, <laughs> and, just, and it, you, you know, signed a billion year contract. So when you, yeah. <laughs> when you say a million, there's some nuance to that one, brother. 
And um, and so one of the reasons I'm also answering the question from sort of what what were the positive aspects is way too often I see the reaction um, of people who watch content regarding cults like Scientology or Nexium or anything. Way too often the response is, how could anybody X, Y, and Z? How could anybody fall for this? How could anybody believe this? And, and there's a part of me that goes, Man, it, if someone watches content and that's the question they come away with, then the content did not do a good job of explaining the experience because the, exactly. the truly educated position would be, oh, I see how someone could fall for that. If you think it could never happen to you, I think you're more susceptible to having it happen to you. If you understand how it works, you're more sort of cult-proofed. <laughs> I totally... Nobody thinks they're joining a cult. <laughs> exactly. You say, you're echoing my, my, uh, my melody, if you will. Um, I'm just finishing uh, uh, two chapters for a textbook on the dark side of hypnosis, and I'm using John Atek's uh, uh, writing, Never Trust a Hypnotist, about Hubbard's writings about hypnosis, the reason I'm mentioning it is I, I'm writing it with a, a law professor emeritus, Alan Shefflin, and he likes to talk about the myth of the unmalleable mind. Like people are walking around thinking, never happened to me. It's those weak, stupid people from bad families, but I'm too smart. Wrong thinking. Be humble. Be human. Everybody falls for a lie. Everybody can get tricked. And if you're not sure about it, go see a magic show and get tricked time after time after time. Like, how the hell did they do that? And it's like, because yeah. we're human. It's one of those things about blind spots is it's it's easy to forget that they're called blind spots because you can't see them and you don't know they're there. And it, it really is remarkable how many people will watch something like Scientology and, and and go, oh, what a cult. I could never join that. And yet they are a either Jehovah's Witness or right. they're in deep deep into MLM or they're into any other. I, I, I hesitate to name too many things for fear of insulting too many people because nobody thinks their thing is the thing. Right. Right. <laughs> it's so it's uh, so true. My it's so um, all I can say is right now I'm not meeting anybody that doesn't know somebody who's fallen for a conspiracy theory, an alien abduction thing, uh, uh, you know, an MLM, uh, 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 and other political conspiracy QAnon-ish types of things. So it's it's kind of everywhere. But I I just want to compliment you. Uh, you're so smart. And that I'm aware you were doing research as a Scientologist for hedge funds for how to invest. That's not a simple thing that anybody <laughs> can do well, right? And I think you're still doing it. But the, again, the point is you can be super smart and good at research, but have it in a compartment and be in a mind control cult at the same moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... Not only do Scientologists not think Scientology is a cult, they it's almost like they think they're the only ones that aren't. <laughs> yeah. Like Scientologists very much look down on other organized or organized religions. Um, and then ironically, Scientology very much Scientologists very much embrace 
almost any multi-level marketing gimmick that's out there. Get get rich quick uh, schemes just flourish uh, through through the Scientology uh, population. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I'm aware of Mormons falling for them like crazy, and a J Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Um, but it's this, you know. Uh, the thing about Scientology, and I, I really didn't have a lot of experience with it until I got out. And when I was deprogrammed out of the Moonies in 76, one of my first friends was an ex-Scientologist who later became an attorney. So he started my education. And then I met Paulette Cooper because we both lived in New York. And she was speaking out about Scientology and I was speaking out about Moonies. So we had a mutual fan club. But uh, in listening to your interview with John Atak, who's a very, very uh, good friend of mine, God, he was harassed and, and just mercilessly broke up his marriage, bankrupted him. But he was doing like he was instructing governments how to prosecute Scientology in like really big legal cases. So they really had a big target on him to the point where he stepped out of the whole thing for a long time and then fortunately came back, but is focused more on inoculating people, like helping to mm. teach people what to watch out for, which I do think is vitally important. But back to your story and growing up in Scientology, please. So there was there was sort of a, a, <clears throat> a pretty strong appeal to being treated like an adult, being treated as an equal to everyone else around me. Um, and, and in that environment, I did actually flourish, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I was only 15 years old when I finished my entire training lineup, which began when I was 12 years old. Wow. So, I mean, I was 12 years old when I started working full time for Scientology, full like full time. Um, I don't have any formal education beyond that point. I don't have an equivalency degree. I don't have a diploma, any any of that stuff. You could get a um, doctorate, buddy, in my opinion, <laughs> having gotten one a few recently. You have the smarts and it's it's really learning the rules and the yeah. you know the sequences. But please continue. If it didn't take so many years, I would do it. I, I did it really in three lawyer. and a half. You could do it. In, if you could get through all of Scientology in three years, you could do a doctorate in three <laughs> years. And let me tell you, people start treating you differently with a doctor in front of your name, even though for most of my adult life, I was like, I don't need a doctorate. I, I know what I know what, you know. And anyway, it makes a difference. It's weird. Yeah. Anyway, I back bet. to you. So, you know, my whole, the growing up story, it's almost like, it's just a very compressed, it's all compressed into one stage. I, I don't have like my adolescence and my teen years and my adult years from the age of 13 to present. In some sense, I feel like I've been the same person. Now, whether that means I'm a really immature 42-year-old or I was a very mature 13-year-old, I'll leave it to others to, uh, <laughs> to ascertain. Probably a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, I have been, I mean, from the age of, uh, you know, I say 13, because that's when I very earnestly started my, my training full-time. 12, I was just sort of on the on-ramp. Um, but, you know, I said I was 15 years old when I finished my training and started working full-time, finished my training in Clearwater, Florida, and went back to the organization I was from in, in Philly uh, to work full time, seven days a week, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock at night. Uh, 
Um, and, and what were you paid you know, a week? Oh, I mean, fifty to a hundred dollars would be a good week. <laughs> and what do you? Th- I, I won't ask you what you earn now in a week, but yeah, I when, you, that when you think back to that, isn't that kind of abusive to only pay that little? Yeah, when the it cult was weird. has it billions. Was all, it, it almost felt virtuous to to do all that work and expect nothing in return. And, and again, that's actually a, a, a sort of a feeling I've sort of uh, kept with me that. Uh, it's better to do something for either nothing or a lot of money, but to do something for some, you know, in, in, in between, you know, it, there's virtue in doing something for free. There's virtue in being very well paid, but, you know, just being moderately paid. Where's the virtue in that? <laughs> That's interesting. Well, I'm I'm going to just comment as a therapist for a minute that one of the things I help my folks with is getting out of this all or nothing thinking or black and white kind of thinking because there is complexity and but I do you know uh, relate to what you're saying because I charge more than most everybody else in the field of counseling cults but I do more free work than anyone else too because that funds me um mm-hmm. but I, I I can't help but come back to one of the things in the Moonies was feeling so special like we're mm-hmm. the chosen. We're the elite. Mm -hmm. We're the ones who know the truth with a capital T and everyone else is walking around in slumberland and ignorant and we're going to fix the planet. And that resonates whenever I I, uh, interact with uh, Scientologists or ex-Scientologists, this this kind of elite chosenness that that puts you above those wogs, those you know, those regular people, please. One, 100%. And, um, and, and that's, uh, Scientologists have that feeling of superiority, even without any concept of, of a God or a Supreme being or the chosen this or the chosen that. L. L Ron Hubbard just created this system where you could throw all that out the window and you could still be better than everyone else. And, and one of the best ways <laughs> to explain it is, um, is the matrix with Neo and Morpheus and Trinity and everything. Scientologists see themselves as Neo. Uh, They see planet Earth as the matrix. Planet Earth is a prison planet. Uh, These physical meat bodies are prisons for, uh, you know, Scientology's word for the spiritual being is Thetan. So Scientologists believe that as Thetans, we are trillions of years old and infinitely godlike in our potential. And through a variety of shenanigans over the trillennia, which is a word I might have made up, uh, (laughs) we have convinced ourselves that we are even able of uh, capable of being trapped in bodies. And then someone sort of did a little switcheroo on us. And now so basically we trapped ourselves and now we're stuck and we forgot that we ever trapped ourselves and only and that's the matrix. Right. So we're stuck in these bodies. We think we're physical bodies. We think. We're living lives of free will, but we have eternal amnesia of all of our previous lives. We have none of our inherent godlike powers. And L. Ron Hubbard has convinced Scientologists that doing Scientology's bridge to total freedom is the only possible way to free yourself from that trap, from that eternal prison, from that eternal amnesia. And one of the ways he's able to perpetuate this belief is because all the levels are confidential and no one's allowed to talk about what's on them. (laughs) So, right, so about Zenu and the galactic <laughs> yeah. dictatorship on OT3. 
I'm just gonna show quickly for the video things this this um, uh, this model that a lot of people are outsiders, but you don't really find out the inside scoop uh, unless you paid the money or you've jumped through the appropriate hoops. Yeah. But, um, and here, I, I want to remind you. Pull up the chart I, one more time. Oh, pull up the chart one more time, real quick, because okay. I want to. This don't is know. where Scientology gets like double crazy, is because if we were to have a conversation about what it meant to be a core devotee or a subleader mm -hmm. in Scientology, there's not even want just one definition because. In Scientology, you have the, the most dedicated membership called the C organization, and yet you can be at the highest level of the C organization and be at the lowest level of the bridge and still have no idea what the secret confidential levels are all about. And so it's this weird, like, double, it's like a cult within a cult. I well, mean, it it's is. It's, it's, so I, I want to say for the listeners who are just like dipping their toe into Scientology as a cult. Uh, Hubbard was a science fiction writer, like first and foremost. So when you were quoting The Matrix, and by the way, I, I there must be 20 cults, including ISIS, that use The Matrix as a device for recruiting and indoctrinating people, by the way. Um, it's a useful um, paradigm. But in wow. Scientology, it's all about money, like paying for everything, unlike a legitimate religious group where you're supposed to, uh, you know, give things for free to do charity work. Scientology does stuff for PR, but they don't really care about charity and they're phenomenally wealthy. Oh, they don't care about charity at all. Um, and it's funny because as much as Scientology is about the money and, and has that perception, <clears throat> the, the the Scientology staff don't get paid anything at all. I mean, fifty dollars a week for the for the dedicated, you know, the the internal clergy, the Sea Org members. Right. Fifty dollars a week is standard Sea Org pay, and that usually gets cut. <laughs> There's usually not enough money being made uh, after management gets its cut to uh, even pay the staff. And so as a staff member, I never felt it was about the money. And yet, organizationally speaking, it most certainly is. And one of the ways L. Ron Hubbard explains that is he goes, if you gave it away for free, people wouldn't value it. You have to, people only value it uh, if, if, you pay, if you pay for it. And therefore, the more you charge, the more they'll value it. Now, even as I say that out loud, that's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's social <If> psychology, <laughs> though, because if you understand cognitive dissonance theory, if you do an extreme behavior like pony up a lot of money, you rationalize to feel good about having ponied That's up true. a lot of money. That's true. And um, you look at how hard Scientology staff around the world are working to get new people into Scientology and get them up Scientology's bridge to total freedom, the number one barrier to being able to accomplish that at a greater scale is the incredibly high cost of Scientology. So you have this incredible contradiction. Like Scientologists would object to, to, to the, character, the characterization that Scientology is secretive and insular. Scientologists would go, we want everybody to become Scientologists. We would, we would like you all to walk in the front doors tomorrow and know everything that we know. Scientologists don't see it as secretive. And, and the biggest barrier to accomplishing that is the cost. And, and this is a, this massive dissonance that occurs in, internally, that exists internally in the organization, this push and the pull of wanting to bring in new members, but nobody can afford it. <laughs> right. So I want you, people don't 
understand how small the core membership is of Scientology. What's when I talked with Mike Rinder, and I want to plug his his new book, uh, Billion Years. Um, he said that it's twenty five thousand at most in the world. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, I have a breakdown that I do like by continent and by organization and by echelon of organization that comes to an extremely charitable, generous estimate of 30,000 members. Ah. So when you start with such low numbers, it's hard to really get a sense of how fast they're declining. Um, could it be 25? Could it be 20? I, I I'm going to do a new video on this soon. I find it hard to imagine it being less than 20 the way I calculate the numbers. Okay. But it's somewhere between 20 and 30. It's not a, bill, a million, as they as they say in their PR. No, exactly. I mean, they will say there's 8 million Scientologists. Right. I mean, that's like almost as many uh, like Jewish people as there are or something, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And, yeah. you know, half the states in the United States don't even have a single Scientology organization. Uh, the, the, uh, a state as of Pennsylvania, as big as it is, has one. The state of New Jersey zero. I mean, New York, the entire state of New York, maybe three. Mm. Like there's more Starbucks within one mile of my house than there are Scientology organizations in like <laughs> New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. <laughs> yeah. I actually did a, a, a formula like that about the Moonies trying trying to take their number of 3 million and go, how many are in New York? How many are... And it was like 2,000, right. 5,000, you know, it's just like ridiculously small numbers, but wealthy, powerful, big law firms, big PR firms for sure. And, uh, and so that's one of the things you mentioned how small Scientology is. And also this sort of relates to what you mentioned before. Like it's not, it's not idiots that are joining Scientology. It's not idiots that join cults. I mean, could they? Sure. Is that, is that the equation? No, it's not. And Scientology is one of the biggest beneficiaries of that is they have such a small membership, but the members tend to be affluent business owners, um, a lot of professionals, dentists, chiropractors, physical yeah, they therapists. they recruit deliberately they doing marketing, consulting, et cetera. They want they have those. These, yeah. yeah. They have a whole network of business consulting firms that have repackaged Scientology materials into course packs that can be sold to non-Scientologists. Uh -huh. And uh, people unsus um, uh, unsuspectingly sign up for business consulting from organizations that have the true ulterior motive of funneling this person into Scientology. Even one of my own family members who yeah. knows all about Scientology just accidentally, without knowing what they were signing up for, signed up for a business a consultant to uh, help their dental practice. And I got an email from my dad like the next day, like, uh, I, I just heard, found out about this. They're obviously Scientologists. What, you know, can you confirm for me? Are these guys Scientologists? I'm like, oh yeah, 100%. Uh, I'll do anything I can to help them get their money back. Good. Um, but these are smart people and yep. they already know about Scientology yep. and they still got suckered into the funnel. Well, that brings up a really important point, which is in the world of cult education, it doesn't help to just give a name because these groups have so many front groups or they change yeah. the name as soon as they get a big media exposure in a negative way. So it's better to, to like do the, the skeletal 
formula. And for me, I like to explain the deceptive recruitment as a big red flag or the don't talk to ex-members or critics ever. Like if yeah. anyone ever says to you, don't ever talk to an ex-member or critic, yeah. run and find the smartest ex-member and critic and go, yeah. tell me the tell me what's going on and why they don't want me to speak with you. And then you get the what's really happening. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I mean, it seems to me that if you sign up for anything and one of the first things they tell you is that there's a certain type of person that you need to cut out of your life, that's probably a huge red flag. Like, sure, are there negative influences in your life? Yeah, sure. Everyone everywhere at all times is going to have something in their life that's affecting them negatively. But if you sign up for some course or some program or some retreat, and the first thing they're telling you is, here's the bad people that you should separate from. It seems to me that's, that's, that's like red flag number one. Yep, for sure. Or you're, you'll, you'll find out when you're ready. You need to go through the courses and then we'll tell you what the beliefs are. What? Yeah. You want me to pay money and make a commitment of time and energy, but you won't tell me what is up there? And what's up there is Hubbard was source with a capital S, supposedly, <laughs> and that he was in the OTO and all kinds of other things that are in John's book, the piece, Let's Sell Him a Piece of Blue Sky, that the public doesn't know about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it kind of goes without saying this to me is the, the essence of a cult is if you've got one dude, just one dude, who for some reason is supposed to be the source of mm. all correct knowledge about anything, I mean, again, it, it seems a little too too on the nose, right? Like, obviously, you're talking about a cult. And yet, Scientologists don't see it that way. Members of Nexium don't see it that way. Like, this is where you get someone going, how could anybody fall for this? And you go, well, they do. Right. Well, well, Keith Raniere, who's in jail for 120 years for trafficking, claimed to be the smartest man on Earth. But did anyone test that? Or he claimed to be a, a <laughs> martial artist? Did anyone test that? Like I would bring a black belt in and, and he'd get his ass kicked real fast. And that would be, you know, but this brings up a bigger point in the world that we live in, Aaron, which is check out the source of information. Like what are their credentials? Hubbard, science fiction writer. <laughs> he claimed to have a PhD in nuclear physics. Where's the diploma? He claimed to be a great naval war hero. Where's the where's the evidence of that? And you find out it's all a lot of lies. Yeah. So much of Hubbard's life. I mean, he, he does strike me as a personality type who couldn't tell you a true story about something that really happened without just making it sound more incredible. Like, doesn't it seem like that was just kind of how he was, he would alter everything. Even if the story was already incredible, he'd be like, it's not incredible enough, you know? Like like, like Dianetics. Uh, on some level, I believe that Hubbard thought he had come up with something that was going to work and make him famous. And yet, and yet if we start with that assumption, right? That he believed Dianetics was a workable mental uh, mm. therapy. You read Dianetics and it's just littered 
with pure, unadulterated nonsense. Stuff yeah. he was just inventing from whole cloth. We weren't Pures evolved cancer. from clams, you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> no, that wasn't Dianetics. Oh, that sorry. wasn't Dianetics. <laughs> <laughs> but that was something he said, right? <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, I think, History of Man. Yeah, that oh. was later on. That was later. Okay, but like, sorry. Honestly, like, there's, even from a, just a, a pure scientific perspective, he, he could not write Dianetics and be honest about it. Um, well, he couldn't because there was no there was no science behind. It was just, you know, stuff he came up with. But like meaning he was making just fantastic claims that he couldn't have possibly believed yep. in order to sell something that he probably believed was helpful. Do you know what I mean? Well, I don't know if he believed that it was helpful because he ripped most of his stuff off from psychiatrists and other people he made in into devils, actually. But do, but don't you think he thought he'd improved on it? Like he stole from others and thought he put his own flourish on it I, or something? I, so in in my re research, malignant narcissists are the stereotypical profile of cult leaders. So that's the narcissism, the grandiosity, the entitlement, the lack of empathy, and those things. But then the malignancy comes in with the thinking they're above the law, pathological lying, sadistic, paranoid, inability to trust. So when you look at Hubbard or Moon or Jim Jones or David Koresh, yada, 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 they have, and they all are fanciful and blow things up because they feel so insecure inside, basically. They really didn't get love when they were young, and they're so insecure that they make up for it by vampiring off of people's affection and attention and projections on them that say, you're smart, you're great, you're wonderful. And there's a loop that happens when you're in a closed system where you need more and more and more of it. And the minute anyone challenges you, you lied or you changed this, you're out. <laughs> Sec wow, that describes that describes Hubbard to a T, doesn't it? I mean, even back in the early days of the the early Dianetics foundations, anytime anyone not not even um, ch challenged him, but even so much as tried to contribute right. in a way that he thought was above their pay grade, it was just instant attacks. And yep. Um, yeah, I mean, you just described L. Ron Hubbard. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the... so, and I want to plug, forgive me, I brought up John a couple of times, but he's written a really important book called Opening Minds that kind of focuses on this malignant narcissism piece that I think is so important. But I want to come back to trafficking and, and growing up in Scientology, because I'm aware there's a lawsuit right now about labor trafficking. And I believe I saw Mike Rinder opining about David Miscavige, the now head of Scientology, being served. Can you give us the latest what you, about that case and what it's about? Sure. Yeah, so there's a case. It's um, Baxter, Baxter and Paris versus David Miscavige et al. So Gwen Baxter, Laura Baxter, and Valeska Paris are three former Sea Org members who worked on the Scientology ship, the Free Winds. Okay. And they're suing David Miscavige and four or five different Scientology entities. Uh, and it's essentially a labor trafficking lawsuit, is my understanding. Mm -hmm. Now, right now, the entire suit is wrapped up in um, the arbitration agreements that Scientologists signed, promising to never sue Scientology for any reason forever. 
So this is the first major hurdle this lawsuit has to get past is Scientology is saying, no matter what's happened here, what may or may not have happened, uh, these people have promised to go to internal arbitration. The plaintiffs are saying those agreements are signed under duress. We want to move forward with a lawsuit. So on the one hand, the suit is currently at that level. A judge is going to rule on the enforceability of the arbitration agreements. At the same time, all of the entities in this case have accepted service and are actively cooperating with the, with the suit, except David Miscavige. Right. He has been in hiding for uh, close to three years now, avoiding process servers. Right. He does pop up here and there at Scientology events. He's scheduling meetings with uh, Clearwater City officials to work on property swaps and stuff like yeah. that. But at like 11 different addresses where he is known to live or work, everyone's like, David Miscavige, never heard of him. Right. So, <laughs> okay, I'm, so the go ahead, please finish up. Well, the plaintiff's attorneys have had to really jump through hoops to prove to the court that he's just intentionally evading service. And Florida law doesn't really allow for someone to just play games like that. So, they have been fo diligently following uh, a somewhat convoluted process that they have to follow to prove to the court. They really have done everything that they can um, in order to serve Miscavige. And they're asking the court to not only rule that he has been served, um, but that he is in um, a, a default. Uh, is, is default the wrong word? I don't know. He has been served and he is in violation of, of the service. He's in default. And yeah. He, default. Yeah. And so that's where it stands right now. It does look like the plaintiff's attorneys have dotted all the T, uh, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and have all their right. paperwork in order. And just two days ago, filed their final motion with the court, the federal court in Tampa to consider Miscavige served. Here's why this is a big deal. Um, if Miscavige is served, you know, discovery moves forward and he will, he will be deposed. And that is worst case scenario. No cult leader wants to have to answer. No honestly, no. in, in a court of law. But I want to come back for one minute because this is a problem on many, many destructive cults where, where they've given these, these legalese documents to people who've been, in my opinion, unduly influenced, not mm. given informed consent, and sign here if you want to do the next level or sign here in order to progress and they're they don't you need capacity and you need information to make an informed choice and i'm aware of one uh uh cult a korean cult called the world mission society church of god where one of their leaders was told make an nda make everybody sign it so he he formulated it he signed it and then he was sued after he left to speak out that and and it went through the judge and the judge said he wasn't of sound mind when he mm. signed it so that's i think this is such an injustice for any group it to is. say it's incredible you signed it's this, incredible you signed your life away you've signed a slavery forever <laughs> document yeah. and you know, not being a, a legal uh, expert or scholar, it's not clear to me at this point whether we need different laws or whether we just need different in in interpretation or implementation of the laws. Up until now, the precedent has been in favor of Scientology on this. Yep. And the fact that the courts have upheld these agreements in other cases just shows such an incredible lack of understanding 
of, of how the cults work. Um, and, you know, the, the cults, you know, Scientology is aware that some of these agreements signed by minors are not legally enforceable. And so they change their procedures so that like literally every time you do a new major service, you sign the form again. And yet at every step of the, and so someone who originally signed the forms as a child might have signed the forms again many times uh, as an adult. Right. And to the court there, you know, a court goes, like, well, how can you say you signed it under duress when you signed it five times? And you go, well, you have to be able to understand that. You can't, you have to be able to understand how that happens. And that every single time they're signing this form, it's just sign the form. It doesn't matter because what's the alternative? Losing all of your friends and your family and everyone you've ever known? Like, is that really? And the bridge the, to know, total freedom, giving that up. Yeah. But I want to and... I want to just add why did Steve Hassan in his 60s do a doctorate? Well, it's cuz I realized the law is about 100 years out of date. We are we are not adults at 18. Now we know you need to be 25 to 26 to have your executive functioning fully operational. And so I got involved with a forensic think tank at Harvard Medical School, and I said, well, the Lifton, Robert Lifton has a model for brainwashing, and Margaret Singer and Edgar Schein, and they're like, yeah, but those are qualitative studies, they're interviews, that's not, that's not hard science. You should do a hard science on your bite model of authoritarian control and show whether or not it holds validity because I really feel like we need to update the law, not just for minors and elderly people with dementia, but to help mm. explain to everyone, here are the characteristics, here's the formula. I use Alan Shefflin, I'm gonna quote him again, he has a social influence model, Aaron. The influencee and their unique vulnerabilities, the influencer or the predator or the predatory organization, and how they deceive, isolate, make dependent, install phobias, all the things from my bite model. And this is a way for experts to explain to judges and juries what undue influence is. And the minute, because undue influence is a 300 year old legal concept that's not new, can't use brainwashing, that's too mushy a construct, but undue influence. Lawyers understand, hmm. So that's where I think the future is going to be in terms of winning. How do you do a quantitative study on that? So I took my, my every attribute of behavior control, information control, thought, and emotional control, and I did what's called the Likert scale of never to always. And I administered the test to over a thousand people. A whole bunch of them are former members, but not only. And we came up with a statistically very high, what's called factor analysis of control. And so that that's only the beginning. I mean, more people, I have a BU professor working on co what's called content validity. Because in science, someone does a study, it's gotta be challenged. Can we replicate it? Is there a better model? Because I'm happy to give up my model if there's a, a, a better descriptive model that judges and juries can use for undue influence. But so far, 
I wrote about BITE in 1988, and people have been reading about it and leaving cults ever since. So hmm. I think I've got some of the core essences that need to be conveyed. Was this study what you did for your PhD thesis? Yeah, exactly. My dissertation is on my website. It's also published in the academic ProQuest um, for everyone to read. And I'm really encouraging more people because one really exciting thing for me is more people are coming out of Scientology and other cults and becoming mental health professionals or becoming scientific researchers because they care about this subject. They care about their family and friends left behind. And yeah. this is what's going to help free the largest number of people everywhere is to clarify, you know, what's a healthy group? Informed consent. What's an authoritarian group? Deception. Withholding vital information, outright lies, or distorting information. Hmm. Encouraging people to use their conscience. Telling people to follow the dogma. Yeah, so you you have the poles on the influence continuum, which is why I call this podcast the influence continuum, because I don't want to just talk about the negative side, but I want to talk about ethical ethical things. Like I, I'm doing an interview with a, a psychiatrist on uh, spontaneous remission of terminal diseases. He did a hmm. study over 12 years, and he came up with what are the factors that have helped these people who got rid of tumors they should never have been able to get rid of. And it's not just, you know, believing it, because I know in Scientology, people are told, you know, you don't need medicine, you, you know, it's all psychosomatic. Am I speaking correctly? And so people yeah, are no, they dying. Think pretty much everything is, they think everything pretty much is psychosomatic. Yep. And yet it's weird though, because that's true. And, and yet seeing a doctor is not prohibited. It's not like Christian science or something. Right. Um, but there, it certainly does create a reluctance and a hesitancy to see a medical professional um, because, well, L. Ron Hubbard said almost everything's psychosomatic. So why wouldn't you just fix it with Scientology? Well, and I, I remember being on a Sally Jesse Raphael show right after the 1991 Time Magazine cover story on the the cult of Scientology, and there was a woman with a brain tumor from Scientology who had pain, and they kept giving her auditing. So she didn't get diagnosed and treated, and she died. And she was a beautiful, intelligent young woman. And, and Kirstie Alley passed away of colon cancer. I don't know what the backstory is for her, but I've really heard about a lot of people dying from things that could have been treated if they had caught it earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and yet uh, it, it really is that hesitancy and that reluctance because science, it's almost, it, it, it is a crime in Scientology to say that Scientology doesn't work or didn't work or hasn't worked or won't work. So whereas if an individual Scientologist simply said, hey, I'm going to go to the doctor, whereas they would not get in trouble for that, no one at the org, none of the auditors, case supervisors, you know, none of the people who are responsible for delivering Scientology are allowed to say Scientology is not working. They need to go to a doctor. So the onus on it is like completely on the individual themselves. And there's this cultural reluctance 
called Joel. There you go. Is that the derivation of the word? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But now I want you to talk about Lisa McPherson. Mm. Because Lisa was held against her will. She was following Hubbard's prescription and she died. I don't know that it was against her will. Um, she was well, certainly she said, being held I want to get out. I want to get out. There were notes, uh, my recollection. Oh, I mean, if that's the case. I mean, I've read a lot about it. I don't know that I've read everything about it. Um, but okay, so at least so there, there's two two things here. Um, one of the agreements that Scientologists sign, uh, there's like four different enrollment agreements that they sign. Every Scientologist signs when they do major courses, major services. Um, is it gives the Scientology, any Scientologist, Scientology official, the authority to check someone out of a mental hospital. So like if a Scientologist is committed for any reason, they have documentation on file at at their local Scientology org that permits someone from Scientology to go and check them out on, on religious grounds that this person, right? So... So, uh, originally what Scientology did was they checked Lisa McPherson out of the uh, uh, the mental facility in Morton Plant Hospital that she had been admitted to because she had lost her mind. She was in some minor car accident. She she got out of the car. She completely undressed and was right. walking up and down the street nude. Right. And so she was committed. And so Scientology took her out of the hospital. So this is what I'm saying. I'm not sure at what point it went from it was against. I just don't know at what point it was against her will. Well, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna state categorically that when you yeah. use the term agreement, they sign an agreement. You yeah. need to have full competency and capacity and information to agree to something. If you're in a mind control cult, and this is what I I did in this these chapters on the dark side of hypnosis, I talk about the TRs, the training routines being hypnotic indoctrination to obedience in Scientology. And I've demoed the TRs for experts in hypnosis, and they all said, oh, that's hypnosis. But Scientologists are told they are dehypnotizing people. Everyone else in the world is hypnotized except them. Except Hubbard was a hypnotist. He really was. That's true. So with Lisa McPherson, um, Scientology has uh, uh, the way they handle it. It's funny because Scientology is so vehemently against any forms of mental therapy. And yet they themselves have absolutely no tools and no ability to handle mental breaks. Right. The only thing L. Ron Hubbard prescribed for someone having a mental break is what they call a type three watch, uh, the introspection, uh, introspection rundown. Type three, P, uh, type three is a, a a term in Scientology where someone's gone crazy; they've lost their mind, hmm. and it's literally putting them in a concealed room, uh, no communication with anybody. Anyone who interacts with them is not allowed to speak with them. It's essentially confinement until they chill out. Well, it's called with, solitary with no confinement. supervision of it's, it's torture. Essentially solitary confinement. Um, and, uh, and with a crazy person, like, uh, like you think of solitary, you think of a, a prisoner has hurt someone, they're in solitary. Um, uh, th- you're protecting that, you're protecting the general population from that person. This is a case where a person has just sort of lost their mind. They might even be a threat to themselves. 
Or maybe and they then, just wanted some... to leave. And by definition, the cult said they were crazy. Well, wanting to leave won't get you won't get you put on a type three watch. Uh, you do have to be like like having having some sort of a mental breakdown. Um, but let's say, but I mean, wanting to blow is uh, you can be put under watch, and that's not the same thing as being put on a type three watch. No, I, I agree. Be no, I, I I get it. Okay, okay. And so with Lisa, uh, what makes what happened with Lisa different than any other person on a type three watch in Scientology? is her physical condition deteriorated so rapidly and there's absolutely no um, qualified medical supervision of any kind whatsoever. Hmm. And it's there was no one there capable of actually understanding what was truly happening with Lisa to the point where they didn't even, it didn't really truly occur to them that she needed to be hospitalized and she'll, until she was hours away from death. Yep. And the only reason you don't see more people dying under a type three watch is it just purely has to do with their physical condition. Like, uh, it's just, I guess, um, usually when people are on a type three watch, they eventually sort of eventually snap out of it. Yeah. And in Lisa's case, that didn't happen. And she was physically deteriorating rapidly. And so when I said it wasn't against her will, all I'm saying is I don't know at which point it would have become against her will. But, you know, because she was a true believing Scientologist. That's kind of what I, I mean when I say that. I could be wrong and we can move on because there's so, so many other points we can make. But my recollection was she had the minor car accident, took off her clothes. They said, the, they said, why are you doing that? Because I want you to think I'm crazy was what she, what they said she said. Oh. And I've worked I mean, look. with people who are in cults who literally try to exercise the demon from their own son because uh, he wanted to leave the cult and he killed his mm. son and he's in jail. Oh, so let me ask you this. Are, do you have the idea that... Um, what she was doing, what led to her hospitalization, that was her attempt to get away from Scientology? That that was my understanding. And I mean, if that's the case, I've, ne I've never understood that. I mean, the that reason- was, I, That was my Intellectually speaking, the reason I would lean away from that is because she was just a public Scientologist. Yeah, you can just she was on the free winds. Anyway, she worked for Scientology- Anyway. No, but I mean, if you want to leave, you can leave. You don't have to be hospitalized to leave. Oh, absolutely. No, she, I, my, yeah. I saw pictures of the autopsy and the bed bugs, and she lost 40 pounds, and she was not a heavy woman. She was a very attractive, uh, yeah. properly proportioned woman. But yeah. being in Scientology, if I can be honest, it's crazy making. You can't, you can't yeah. really have all your own critical thinking, operational, and be in a Scientology uh, 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 cult because, yeah. you know, you're, like you were saying at the beginning, you think you're an alien that's millions of years old and you're in this flesh meat suit and Xenu, if you did OT3, Xenu, the galactic di dictator, flew you to the planet Tigiak and put you in volcanoes and detonated a hydrogen bomb, which is what the bombs were in the 50s, not now. Well, Steve, when you say it like that, it sounds crazy. Yeah. But you know, you know, Lisa never got up to the, the OT level. She never even learned about all that stuff. No, And I it's know. amazing. It's always been amazing to me that more people don't go absolutely crazy on the OT levels considering, considering the implication of what's on them. What's on them is... You, 
it's like it's like the the ultimate in multiple personality disorder. Correct. That these thousands of these spirits are infesting you know, attached to your body, attached to you as a being. They're controlling your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your pains, your illnesses. You all, all, I go, that seems designed to drive people insane. And, and I've always been amazed that more people don't go insane on the OT levels. Yeah, and, and uh, people are told that they can recover their powers to move objects with their mind and control the weather. To which I've always said to high OTs, I'm a critic of Scientology, but I'll join right now. Levitate that ashtray over there only with your powers. Don't touch it. And I'll join. And they're like, I don't want to reduce this to a parlor trick or you wouldn't believe it if you saw it. To which I'd say, yes, I'd believe it. You do it three times with three different objects with no no magnets, no holograms, etc. I'll I'll be a big advocate for Scientology, right? But it's it's it really is a dissociative disorder from my mental health training. You you're split from your authentic self and the, your good Scientology self, and mm. um, and people like yourself. In my experience, and it was similar to a woman, I just interviewed Yasmin Mohammed, who was raised in an Islamic fundamentalist household, who, who wasn't raised that way for the first few years, and then her mother converted, and she always rebelled. It was like, this, I don't want to be this way, and, but, you know, and finally she broke free, but what a horrible set of experiences she was put through. Wow. Hey, I have one a line of questioning I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Because <clears throat> um, going back to what you said about um, wanting to do this study, because you know these, you said the laws in the books about coercive control are like 300 years old or whatever, right? Undue influence is the term. Un British undue common influence. law. Undue influence. So to what degree do you think, because Mike Rinder has stated that one of the problems that exists here in the United States, judicially speaking, is that the religious right would is very they very much would not want to establish any legal precedent uh by going against say Scientology thousand that percent would, that would possibly open their organizations up to examination that they would not welcome is that a big problem Absolutely. So I'm going to go back in time to 1976 when I first was deprogrammed from the Moonies. I had a near-fatal van crash, which is how my family found me. And I had casts on my leg and both legs, and I was walking around in crutches. So when I was lured to my sister's house, they just took my crutches away, and I couldn't run away or fight. And, and it was my father's tear that convinced me to throw, throw my family a bone and prove I wasn't in a cult and I wasn't brainwashed, right? But back then, when I first got out, when people wanted to rescue a loved one from the Moonies, they would go to court and get what's called an ex parte conservatorship, which means the person you're going to the judge isn't present in court. They're the, the adult child in the Moonies. And the argument that we did before the judge was, Your Honor, we believe our adult son was a victim of artful and designing people. We would like custody for one week 
to expose him to former members, to teach him about brainwashing in China, uh, please grant us this legal conservatorship. And they were granting them. And I did a bunch of deprogrammings um, where it was totally legal and they almost always worked. But the cults freaked out because they realized, oh my goodness, this is working and people are leaving. So they went to all the other major religious groups and said, these evil people are kidnapping adults and forcing them to renege on their religious commitments. And if you don't back us up, you're next. And they did that routine. And, and I truly believe that any legitimate religious group that is honest, transparent, doesn't lie to people to recruit them in, allows people conscience, people can leave without threats or harassment, they're not going to be intimidated by any laws about undue influence. It's only the extremists that are doing these types of extracting large sums of money out of people who can't afford it, et cetera. So what happened? Did those ex parte conservatorships stop getting approved? Exactly. Really? Yeah. And so judges that were approving them were now disapproving them or it's never the same judge or what? No, there was a, a, they, the the cults, the Mooney science, and they were all working together against the common enemy, the deprogrammers and the cult awareness people. And so they literally went to Jewish agencies and Christian organizations, mm -hmm. and they gave that whole lobbying spiel that if you you know, the next, you know, if you don't back us up there, you're next. So people are going to go after the Catholic church next, if you don't back us up. And so there was this wow. huge religious right lobby. Um, and, and that's part of the problem because a lot of these groups are very wealthy and they, they cultivate Supreme court judges and they cultivate you know, other um, politicians. Uh, uh, so it's it's really, we really need to get back to separation of what's called separation of church and state, which includes mosques and temples and, and atheists too. Just separation of this. But um, right now, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction in the United States. So I have said on my channel a few times, and based on the comments that Mike Rinders made on the subject, that you know it is the Christian right, that the evangelical right, that ends up carrying Scientology's water for them, whether they know it or not. And the viewers on my channel who are Christian uh, don't really understand what I'm talking about. And I didn't even know what you just said. Like what you just said was the, is a perfect example of how it is the Christian right that really does hold an enormous amount of power in this country is the one that ends up running... Uh, air cover for Scientology. And I feel like if they truly understood what we were talking about, you know, with these cults and whatnot, they're not doing themselves any favor, uh, these Christian groups, these Christian activist groups or Christian rights groups, by allowing Scientology to hide behind their shield. They're not doing themselves any favors. Except they, they would have are. more credibility. I'm going to challenge you on that because in my research, 
for example, the 40, 50 million people who think that Trump actually won the 2020 election, even though all of Trump's people said no, um, they're in what's called new apostolic reformation megachurches or smaller churches. And what those are are mind control cults by my evaluation. They have a person who says, I'm an apostle or I'm a prophet. I can talk directly to God and get revelations. I can speak in tongues and cast out demons and do faith healings. And they operate behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control to make spiritual warriors to would some, would take someone over like a America. Joel Osteen? With someone like like mega church like Joel o like are we talking about just mega churches or are we talking about people who can consider themselves prophets? We're talking about people who claim to be part of the new apostolic reformation. There's actually a website where they mm. they it's like a union of these, and this is a new version of Christianity. People who actually know the New Testament, know the teachings of Jesus, go, this is not it. <laughs> like not. They're not about power and money and politics. It's about being a good person to the least in the kingdom and 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 refuting. I, I hadn't heard that phrase before. The new apost apostolic reformation. Apostolic reformation. Come to wow. my website, Freedom of Mind. Put in new apostolic reformation. I have a former pastor of one of these groups who's now a Bible scholar. I interview him twice. And uh, a, a fellow who wrote a book on this organization. This is 650 million people worldwide, Aaron. This is not a oh, small wow. group. And they think so, they're going to take on, you know, dis defeat Islam and Judaism, and they're going to have a Christian world, they think. Hmm. That's their So these Christian rights groups or multi faith religious freedom groups, I don't know the best way to describe them. You're telling. The, I'm not the talking about Christian group. rights. I'm talking, uh, I'm, I'm more- No, 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 different train of thought. Okay, different train sorry. Of thought. It is these groups that got our judicial, our judiciary to stop approving these ex parte conservatorships. Like to me, that is remarkable. I've never, I've not heard about that. Um, is there documentation about this? I, I'm sure there is because I lived it. I mean, I literally was- talking to people, only even the Moonies, when I was doing forcible deprogramming, but it, they were legal for the most part. And we literally would have a sheriff knock on the Mooney door, ask to see the person and escort them out for mm. a week with us. And mm. unlike the brainwashing manual that it turned out the OSA did saying, oh, you know, beat up the people and rape the women, <laughs> their faux deprogramming manual. But no no family who cares about their loved one in the moon cult would allow anyone to harm their loved one. I mean, be real. They would not. Yeah. You know, David Miscavige in his um, famous interview with Ted Koppel back in 1992, I think I it remember was. that live. There's some part of that interview where, well, they show some interviews with some former Scientologists and then Miscavige says something that 
you know, there's one guy who's organized all these people. Maybe, maybe at that time, the Cult Awareness Network still existed or whatever. And Miscavige inter- accuses someone live on national television of conspiring to kidnap people. And it did occur to me, I bet he's talking about deprogramming. Yeah, so Ted Patrick was the fellow who created the term deprogramming. And the disinformation, and I credit or discredit Scientology for this uh, propaganda, made the Cult Awareness Network, which was a constellation state by state of ex-members and parents, made it into a deprogramming organization that would kidnap and beat and torture and rape people to get them out of their religious groups. And that's just not true. There were a few people who were deprogrammed by Ted Patrick who worked for him, who did forcible stuff, but they got arrested and they retired because they were going to spend the rest of their life in jail. I myself, once they stopped giving uh, the conservatorships, I, I only did voluntary things because mm. I don't, yeah. I don't, I'm not I was a criminal. Say, you know, I just want to I mean, help having people. Grown up in, having grown up in Scientology, deprogramming is a dirty word. Uh, in the Moonies, it was a dirty word. I was <laughs> I was petrified that Satan. I was shown the Exorcist uh, movie. Aaron, <laughs> you were mentioning the Matrix when the when the Exorcist came out in seventy four. Moon sent the whole New York membership to watch it. Brought us up to Tarrytown, and he gave a speech how God made the Mex. This is a movie that's a prophecy of what will happen if you leave the Unification Church. What was the, which message in the movie? Like what? You're going to be- You will be possessed a la demons if you leave the Moonies. We believe that. Wow. That was what I call phobia indoctrination. I'm Jewish. I don't believe in Satan or evil spirits possessing me. That was a new idea. Watching that movie and then hearing the Messiah, the greatest man in human history, say God made that movie- and this wow. is what will happen if you leave. At that point, I stopped allowing any critical thoughts whatsoever. Mm. I was petrified. Well, it's funny. I sort of scoff and laugh at the idea of being possessed by demons, but you go, but that's exactly what Scientology believes. Body thetans, The demons right? are just body thetans. Right. I mean... <laughs> no, it's, um, pretty, it's pretty trippy. It really helped me, though, get out of the moony mindset by talking to ex-Scientologists and ex-Children of God and ex-Krishna. I, I never knew they existed. Uh, I mean, I, I, they tried to recruit me, but I never understood the mindset or what was the actual parallels with it. But since it was really Jonestown that was like a huge wake-up call, because when I watched the bodies face down on the jungle floor in November of 78, my first thought was, oh my God, I could have done that. Hmm. If I was ordered to drink cyanide lace flavorade, I would have done it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, people ask me if I think there's any possibility that Scientology, you know, at the highest levels of management could go that way. And my, the first response is, no, of course not. But I could think of scenarios where it would. They would be extreme scenarios, but it was extreme in the case of the People's Temple. Yeah. You know, 
Scientologists believe that L. Ron Hubbard causatively dropped his body so that he could pursue his upper level uh, research in, into upper OT levels. And, you know, all you would have to do is convince Scientologists that L. Ron Hubbard has now has now gotten target two. You know, L. Ron Hubbard, when he died, Scientologists believe he went off to target two to start Scientology on another planet. That target two is well in hand and the suppressive forces have, you know, looks like they're going to win here on Earth. And so he needs everyone to drop their body and go join him on target two. You got it. Now, it's just as simple as that. Now, yep. do I think that's going to happen? No, I don't. But if... If David Miscavige convinced Scientologists of that, a, a certain percentage of them would do as he wished. And if people listen to people like yourself, Mike Rinder, Leah Remini, and others, John Atak, I've heard story after story that the average person would go, why would anyone believe that or do that? The story of somebody who had to push a pencil down the hallway with their nose? Like, really? Like, how is that spiritual? Like, how is yeah. that in any shape, way, or form a human rights organization? Yeah. 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 So Wild we're going to wrap up. This has been uh, so interesting. I'm going to give you the last words, and uh, and I hope we can talk further. Oh, yeah. We can chat anytime. Um, last words, I would just encourage people to um, check out the Aftermath Foundation website. Um, we help Tell people us who about are it. Just give us yeah. a little few words about so what So the is Aftermath it? Foundation is a, is a nonprofit that we created to help people who are escaping from Scientology, um, escaping from the C organization, in many, lives, uh, in many cases, restarting their lives completely from scratch, losing everything and everyone they've ever known. Um, it's called the Aftermath Foundation, named after the Aftermath television show. Right. Uh, Leah Remini is not on the board, um, but she is a big supporter of the foundation. And it's just been phenomenally successful. We've been able to help people escape from Scientology from from all echelons and, and all regions. And it's just been wildly successful. So, and, um, and former members really appreciate a helping hand to exit and they're incredibly hardworking and loyal, oh, yeah. you know, so if anyone wants to do oh, a yeah. similar nonprofit to help people get out of other groups, um, I, I, I totally think it's a wonderful thing. And I thank you for all your tireless work because I think you're doing a real contribution by uh, having your channel on YouTube. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Great. Thanks again, Aaron. Take care. Okay. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at CultExpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. 
These books are a culmination of 45 plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.